Well, Merry Christmas. Um, it's good uh, to share Christmas today with my forever family. You guys are my family here at Crosswinds, and uh, if you're new to Crosswinds or if you're online, I want you to know this uh, family of misfits will love you because we serve a God who loves you. You know, I'm very proud of our, our teens and our children and Jean for the great program they put on the other night, the, the Sun. We had over 70 people attend, and we raised over $300 for our Benevolence Fund to help families in need in our community. I just want to thank Jean and Emil because they led the effort, and they did such a great job um, leading. And uh, again, let's give them both a big hand because they, they worked hard with the kids. Matthew, am I coming through? I'm losing my voice, so if you can bring, bring me up. My pack is on, so... Okay, can you bring me up a little, though? It's okay. That'll help me. I won't have to push as much. Thank you. Um, well, today, uh, friends, your misfit pastor has a, a strange Christmas message for you. You know, most pastors would be going through the book of Luke, and they'd hit a climax today of a soft glow around a manger scene with uh, all creatures celebrating Jesus. But as you can see from the graphic, I went a different way. <laughs> Your pastor chose to preach Christmas this year through the book of Matthew. And, and the text we have today is not so warm and not so fuzzy. At Crosswinds, we, we preach the Bible can we believe that all of God's word is useful, even when it's not romantic or sentimental or cute? If you haven't been at Crosswinds before, I affectionately call this place the land of misfit toys. Because the truth is, we are all broken in some way due to the sin in this world. And, and our message today is maniacal misfits. And the idea came from the animated Rudolph story, showing misfits as cute and cuddly, but a little broken in some way. But, but some misfits, are, they're not so broken by sin. They're downright dangerous to others. In Rudolph, there was the abominable snow monster who eventually became kind after an uh, elf dentist took out his sore tooth. But the truth is, hurt people hurt people. And sometimes they can be very dangerous to us. See, our sins are either from omission, where we neglect to do what was, is good and moral, sometimes even unconsciously. Or our sins are from commission, behaviors that involve intentionally doing something morally wrong. But the reality is the net result is the same to the victims of the sin, whether it's intentional or un unintentional, it really doesn't matter. The, the word maniacal is there because of Hing King Herod in our text today. And, and the definition of this word maniacal is someone exhibiting extreme, wild, or violent behavior, which fits King Herod. He's a threat to the Holy Family, and, and they're on the run because of him. And I was thinking about it. I think all of us have people in our lives that sometimes do damage to us. 
It could be a boss. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a sibling. It could be a church member. It could be a neighbor. And for some of us, Christmas is about having to interact with that person who hurt us again and again and again. And it may not be intentional. It might because, be because of a mental illness or an addiction or other hurts and habits from their past. It's often very difficult in those situations to sort out whether it's intentional or unintentional, if it's just a result of their own brokenness. And often in Christ, as Christians, we have sympathy for them. But honestly, there are some people that are just not safe for us. And so today, I want us to find hope and, and freedom from the pain caused from those maniacal sinners. And so let's look to God's word. And it says in verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The they he is talking about here were the wise men who came from the east to worship the infant Jesus as their king. That's such a fitting scene for the Savior. That's the kind of thing that traditions and, and stories are built from. But Matthew presents a story kind of in the backdrop of this warm and fuzzy moment, showing us that there is evil out to destroy us. Evil out to destroy the baby. At the same moment he is being worshipped and adored, evil is plotting against him. You know, if you sometimes feel as if evil is out to get you, you're right. That's what Matthew's saying, you're right. You know, John Eusarian in the novel Catch-22 said this, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after you. We have an enemy. If you're on Christ, you have an enemy that is seeking to destroy you and your faith. No matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try, and, and the things you seek to do, we have opposition. I mean, think of Jesus here. He has done nothing but be cute and cuddly up to this point in his life. And, and the world leader's out to destroy him. All because he has the potential to do good. You know, we have an expression in our family that no good deed goes unpunished, and Jesus has come to do good. You know, each of us, when we're born again, by the Spirit, is a threat to the plan of the evil one just by us existing. And he will seek to destroy us. You know, I love what Andre said when my friend Jason here was baptized. He walked up to me and didn't say, congratulations. He said something like, now the battle begins. <laughs> Beloved, that is the truth for each one of us in Christ. Beloved, you will be tested. For some of you, it will happen tomorrow by a drunk uncle that mocks you in your faith at the dinner table. Or, or by a busybody sister-in-law that gossips about how you think you are holier than thou. And she says that behind your back to the rest of the family. And, and maybe you won't even be invited to Christmas activities because others will feel that your presence will take away their freedom to sin and have fun. 
Sometimes these things will be intentional and sometimes very intentional. And it will hurt. The pain of other people's sin as they reject God can sometimes really hurt us. And so even at Christmas, you need to recognize you're not at home and that there is an enemy at work. From the moment Christ was born, evil was trying to take him and us out. And we may live in a world that likes all the lights and the festivities of this holiday season, but in reality hates what Christ represents. Today, those who believe in Jesus as Savior in this world are mocked and scorned by both the media and many politicians and celebrities because they find Jesus a threat to them because they're being their own gods, doing what they desire. Today, we are called radicals, extremists, for having faith in Jesus Christ and, and trying to live morally like he did. Friends, we are the villains to those in power in our world, just like Christ was to Herod. Yet I also want you to see in this verse that God is protecting his son, just like he protects all those who believe. He has sent Joseph, his earthly father, a dream to warn him of the threat. The story proves that while evil is out to get us, there's a much greater force that is on our side that is for us. But his way of dealing with evil is different than what we might expect or what we might hope for. God has the power to make Herod's heart stop right now. Right? But instead... He tells his own kid to run. To get to a safe place where evil can't carry out its plans. Think about it. The fate of all of our salvation is at risk by this maniacal king. And God doesn't take him, take him out immediately. God uses Herod's plotting of evil instead to reveal this child to the world so the world could be saved. Friends, our job in this world is not to destroy evil. But sometimes it's to stand up to it and against it, as Jesus did throughout his life. And sometimes it's for us to separate ourselves from us so that we can be safe, so that we can do future good that he has called us to do. See, friends, God gave Joseph a dream to warn him. But also in his word, he gives us many warnings to escape those who seek to do evil against us. Here's just a couple. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Proverbs 4, 14 through 15. He says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 22 24 through 25. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Titus 3.10. Do any of those quotes sound like any of your maniacal relatives that you might be dealing with this Christmas? 
Herod is supposedly the king of the Jews. He's, he's supposed to be family. They're all one people. And he knows that Jesus is the Messiah because he organized the, a great Bible study with the top Bible scholars in the world at that day and, and discovered that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the ultimate hope for the world. And yet Herod is furious that Jesus exists. And so the tactic here is not for Joseph to come and, and, and show Herod how good Jesus is because it's not safe. You know, there's a book I've read by the Christian counselors, uh, Townsend and Cloud, Christian book. It's called Safe People. See, there are unsafe people in all of our lives that God may be telling us to get away from until it's safe again. But sometimes we get used to the abuse. It starts to feel normal to us. Some of us may need a wake-up call that someone, whether it's a family or a friend, is out to get us because they're so broken in their sin. And, and God wants his children safe so we can fulfill the good purpose he has for us. Sometimes we're trying to fix the situation in our own way. You know, Joseph could have tried to do that. He could have thought, I'm going to take this baby to Jerusalem to prove to Herod that he's not a threat. Friends, you can't have peace with someone who wants you dead. Many in the press who don't understand the situation in Israel criticize their war. But how do you make peace with an enemy that doesn't really want peace but wants you dead? This is the situation with Herod. He wants the Messiah dead. Doesn't matter how cute or cuddly how well-behaved he is, how not threatening he is. And I want you to ask yourself, why are you trying to make someone who's out to get you like you? Flee. Flee. And let God take care of it. Notice I didn't say you need to take care of it. God's word says this, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 19 through 20. Sometimes it's not possible to have peace with maniacal misfits. They don't want it. And according to God's word, we are not to become maniacal ourselves and deal with it. We are to trust God in it. Part of God's plan here was letting Herod be a maniacal king. He could take him out, but he chooses instead to show him mercy for a while. Even though it greatly inconvenienced his own son and his family. Friends, Sometimes it seems like the maniacal misfits of our world win or succeed. You may have neighbors, you may have relatives that seek to do evil, and yet, yet they seem to prosper. They seem to go ahead of you. 
But trust God. He is for you. Their day of justice will come. The Bible guarantees God will deal with the maniacal misfits in our lives. Proverbs 37 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Maniacal misfits that will not listen to God and his word will do themselves in. They will fall on their own sword in their pride. You just need to get out of the way and, and let it happen. God is just. It says later in Psalm 37, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Friends, Jesus is always meek. He's not weak. And that little bundle of flesh and that swaddling clothes is the very power of God. But in his love and his mercy, he restrains himself to give all of us maniacal misfits a chance, a chance to repent, a chance to change. We're to pray for those that persecute us and hurt us because we are to hope that God can help them to change. Beloved, be meek. And trust in his justice. Heed his warning to flee those plotting evil against you. And so Joseph here obeys God's call to flee. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Notice Joseph's obedience was immediate. He was to protect what was good, his son, and go. He went by night, which was not safe for travel in those days, but, but there was a greater threat than the darkness of night. See, Joseph didn't let his fears lead him. He, he let God lead him. You know, our own fears can sometimes keep us from fleeing evil. To escape evil, we often have to do something uncomfortable, something new. We have to make a change. And fear is what can keep us in abuse from maniacal misfits. But God will provide for you. He provided for this holy family. Unexpected people from 600 miles away, these, these wise men came with unexpected treasure, which gave them the capital to start over in a new country right before this happened. They were able to get warning through a dream, and all they needed to do was obey. God had them covered. See, in Egypt at this time, there lived over a million Jews in places like Alexandria because of past wars. And, and so this family was able to go there and find a soft landing among their own people who understood them and who would welcome them in a foreign land. Friends, God has provided all of you a church family to help protect you and encourage you so that you can escape the abuse of maniacal misfits. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he has ascertained from the wise men. See, Herod is raging with murder because he got tricked. Maniacal misfits often pride themselves on their own cleverness. They like to be the smartest person in the room. That, that's how they control things. And yet the king is tricked by men wiser than him because they follow God. The Bible says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. Proverbs 26, 12. This king is known for being wise and crafty as a political leader. But here he shows what a fool he is without God. He devises a brilliant plan to destroy himself. That's what sin is. It's a plan to destroy ourselves. Jesus is king, and he's the answer to Herod's ultimate problem. Herod fears losing his power and his kingdom so much that he had his own family killed because of his fears of their betrayal. And, and now he seeks to kill the very one who Scripture promises could preserve his life and give him an everlasting kingdom. He trades holding on to his temporary power. He trades that for having true eternal power. See, that kingdom he maniacally seeks to protect will fail. But the one he is trying to destroy has a kingdom that will never fail. Many maniacal misfits are trying to hold on to control of others, only finding out when it's too late the real way to have control of your life is to give up control and trust in God. But instead, Herod comes up with his own solution. He comes up with his own squiggly line, like in the three circles illustration we use. A squiggly line to fix his own world. Not a very rational idea comes out of his brokenness. He decides to kill the hope for everyone. Issuing a decree to have every male child killed two years old and under. Now, there's some modern historians that debate whether this story is true because the killing of children in Bethlehem is not recorded by history. But Bethlehem is not well populated. So it's only about 10 or 20 children that would have been killed. And I say that not because it's, I say the word only, not because it's not tragic for those children's families, but that historically it's not noteworthy for Herod to have killed 20 kids. Herod had killed so many people in his quest to hold power. Because see, Herod, he was paranoid, and he had a great fear of conspiracy against himself. And so he maintained a network of spies and informers throughout his kingdom. And when he heard about anybody with any kind of dissent, it led to their imprisonment 
and then to their execution. Even the families of high-ranking officials. The news of children dying here is not noteworthy in his kingdom. Herod's evil, though, friends, did not thwart God's plan. Instead, it revealed who Jesus was to us. It helped him fulfill the prophecies, identifying him as the true king or Messiah. His exile to Egypt fulfills this prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This comes from the prophet Hosea in uh, 11.1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel, in the scriptures, was called God's loved son. That, that was in Exodus 4.22. God tells another maniacal leader, the Pharaoh, to let his son go so that they might serve him. See, when we escape maniacal misfits in our life, we are free to serve God, not them. And, and this is a prescriptive prophecy. It, it made a, a difference to the Israelites, but it also is about Jesus. The Messiah is also a son of God called out of Egypt like the Israelites in the Exodus. It shows that Herod's evil here only goes to further prove Jesus' sonship and eternal kingship. Our, our response to evil, brothers and sisters, is something that can magnify who God is by how we respond in Christ. Matthew, in his Christmas story, does not shy away from this reality that evil's against us. Instead, he shows how evil can work to prove and aid the work of salvation in us and others. Verse 17, he says, Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And this prophecy is from a section of Scripture in Jeremiah 31. Friends, it's all about the Messiah. It's about God's faithfulness, love, and grace, and protection to his people as they're escaping Pharaoh's abuse in the desert. Actually, it was more about as they're going into exile into a foreign land because of another maniacal misfit called Nebuchadnezzar. And it's to encourage them that, that God is still with them, that he is faithful, and that he has a plan for them. In it are great promises of God's protection from ultimate evil. He speaks of this Messiah coming and forgiving our sins and God remembering them no more. It speaks of a new covenant that will change our maniacal, rebellious hearts, giving us intimacy with God. See, Jeremiah is also honest about the suffering and pain our rebellious sin causes. Rachel, who is seen as a mother of Israel to the Jews because she mothered Benjamin and Joseph, who made up of three of the 12 tribes. Three, because Joseph's sons each became one of the tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
The word Rama here means high place. So there are Ramas throughout the land. But in Bethlehem, the Rama is Rachel's tomb, signifying here that Rachel is looking down, weeping over the destruction of her children by King Herod's murderous rage. Again, Herod's attempt to stop the Messiah only reveals the Messiah in this prophecy. While the killing of children is horrific, we see the proof of God's promise spoken in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Beloved, even in the abuse that the maniacal of this world put upon us because of their sin, God is still working for our good in it. God doesn't waste a scar. Our scars just become a testimony of his love and ultimate care for us. Verse 19, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Those who seek to do evil and destroy the plans of God, friends, are themselves destroyed. Herod died. Friend, the wage of our sin is death. At this point, there's kind of a celebration in this text. Ding dong, the wicked witch Herod is dead. Right? <coughs> Herod died horribly. Roman historian Josephus describes that his entrails were being ulcerated and putrefied. He had difficulty breathing and a horrible stench to his breath. His guts were full of worms, and they were coming out as privates. la 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 Sorry, it's not so Christmassy, is it? That's a great Christmas story. Um, Herod tried to take control of his life and ended up miserable in life. At the end of his life, he, he tried to kill himself with his own knife, but his cousin stopped him. Herod had wealth and power and everything a ki king could buy, but it could not save him. The only thing that could save him is what he sought to destroy. So did he finally repent? Did he admit his sinful ways and receive God's mercy? No. Instead, in his mad, maniacal thinking without God, he realized, thought to himself, nobody's going to mourn me as a great king in my death. Instead, everybody out there in Israel is going to be singing, ding dong, the wicked Herod is dead. And his ego couldn't handle it. And so Josephus, the historian, records that his plan was to gather as many of the popular national leaders and influential people from the Jews and have them all executed the moment he died. That way there would be mourning throughout the nation instead of celebration. Thankfully, after his death, his sister Solomon and her husband Alexis did not execute the king's command. Instead, they freed those he imprisoned. Now, the word of Herod's death comes to Joseph in a dream. 
beckoning our true king Jesus to come back to his people in Israel. <coughs> and he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a, warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Again, we see Joseph immediately obeying the words of God through a dream. And he starts to take Jesus home to Israel. But then he hears Archelaus is now reigning in Jerusalem. And he was known to be as godless and as cruel and brutal and corrupt as his father. And so Joseph gets another dream and he obeys that dream from God and goes to the district of Galilee. See, Herod's kingdom was, after death, broken into three kingdoms or portions between his three sons. The district of Judea was ruled by Achelaus, and Herod Antipas ruled <coughs> the district of Galilee. And Herod Antipas would be the one that saw to it that John the Baptist and Jesus were both executed. But again, God uses some other maniacal misfit to bring about his ultimate plan of salvation for us. In verse 23, he, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. <coughs> so that was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. And he would be called a Nazarene. Now remember, Jesus is just a child. From a human standpoint, he can't really determine where he lives, right? So to escape Antipas, they, they settle in a city called Nazareth, which Luke's gospel tells us was Mary and Joseph's hometown. And, and friends, that was a, the last place, most likely, that this couple would want to go. Because see, there were still rumors floating around by loose tongues about the suspicious circumstances of Jesus' conception. They might be ridiculed there. But it was a nowhere place, and it was relatively safe for their son to grow up in and, and fulfill his mission, so they went there. It also, again, proves the Savior's identity by fulfilling the Scripture that he'll be called a Nazarene. This place, Nazareth, is so small and insignificant, it's not even mentioned once in all of the Old Testament. Actually, neither is there a single prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned. Some scholars claim that what this says is that the word Nazareth derives from the Hebrew word branch or netzer. And because those two words are phonetically similar, they connect this ancient prophecy from Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, which is a prophecy about Jesus as Messiah because he is from the lineage of David, whose father was Jesse. But if you look closely at our verse today, you'll notice Matthew didn't say prophet like he does in other places. He says prophets, which is plural in Hebrew as well. But again, there's not a single prophecy regarding Nazareth in the scripture. But Matthew says prophets. So what some scholars believe and what I believe is 
This refers to something else. See, Nazareth was a place of scorn at this time in all of Israel. You know, there's always that one town nearby that you don't want to be from. That town that everybody else makes fun of. Growing up for me and my friends, it was the town of Berwyn. We used to say, and up here from Berwyn, don't be offended. I grew up in Hinsdale. It was a wealthy town with a good reputation. And we made fun of the Berwynites. Berwyn. You know, we, even the way we said it. And if you're from Berwyn, I'm sorry. I actually like the town now. There's a lot to offer in Berwyn. But back in the day, we thought of Berwynites as low-class cl- people. We would go and steal their tacky pink flamingos from their front lawns and drive over to Hinsdale and stick them in our friends' lawns as a joke. Yes, your pastor was a budding maniacal misfit back then. Berwyn may not be the name of the town or the people you made fun of growing up, but I bet there's somewhere, maybe a school rival, somewhere you made fun of. See, friends, Nazareth was that town in the first century. We know that from the scriptures. Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, when he first heard about Jesus, this new prophet, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Illustrating the town's rep. Now, Nathaniel's not a critical, maniacal misfit. In Scripture, Jesus regards him as one of the nicest disciples. He's not one of the guys that says mean things. He's kind of like Cleonius, one of the nice guys in, in the church. Except when he's speaking about Nazareth. So I I believe Matthew's reference to the prophets, from the prophets, about Jesus being a Nazarene, is about how Jesus would be viewed in the world. That he would be rejected, despised, and ridiculed by all. Isaiah the prophet said this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, Isaiah 53, 3. In Psalm 22, Jesus is described as a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind. In Psalm 118, Jesus is the cornerstone, the builders, rejected. In Psalm 69, he is described as being rejected by his own family. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. See, the prophecy about him from many prophets is that he will be rejected as Messiah. That the maniacal men and women of this world will choose their sin over him. While he is the only true and good one, he shall be called a Nazarene, a place despised in the world. Jesus himself, though, took this as a badge of honor. In Acts 9, the risen Lord identifies himself to Paul, another maniacal misfit out trying to kill Christians. He identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was even despised by his hometown of Nazareth. After preaching there, they tried to throw him off a cliff as he preached his mission. 
But Jesus identified himself with Nazareth because he is the Lord of all those who are marginalized, who are abused in this world. He did not identify himself with the great maniacal kings and important people of this world like Herod. Our Lord came as he said to the people of Nazareth, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came for the broken. He came for the despised of this world. He came for those that are harassed and hopeless because of their sins and the sins of all the maniacal misfits committed against them. He came to be their king, to conquer all the evil that abused them. He did not come to destroy us for our wickedness. The very men who beat him and hung him up to die on a Roman cross, he prays for. He calls out to his father and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Yes, they are maniacal. They are doing insane things. They are killing the one that came to save him. But I can redeem them with my love. Jesus' abuse was all part of God's plan because he, in his love, allowed his own son to die, to die for us because Jesus was perfectly righteous and his death would pay the full price for all of our sins. And then three days later, that same Jesus walked out of the tomb alive again and alive forever, proving he alone defeated that maniacal devil that had been seeking to destroy us all from the beginning. He defeated his weapon that he used against us, our sin and our rebellion against God. Jesus even destroyed the penalty for our sin, which is death. Death is an enemy that even the rich and the powerful can't escape. Only Jesus, our King, can take away its sting and give us everlasting life. Misfits, we've all been hurt by the effects of our own sin and the sins of other misfits, whether intentional or unintentional. Today, we must turn from our mind maniacal insanity thinking that we can fix it ourselves, that we can fix this problem in some way ourselves like Herod thought. Instead, we must turn and trust in God's only solution, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. We must trust in Jesus of Nazareth. And friends, we will be despised and we will be rejected like he was for our faith. 
but the path of Herod leads to eternal death and suffering and worms eating out your insides forever. So heed the warning from the life of the maniacal Herod, who many called great in this world, but now suffers in hell. Today, repent and turn to the Nazarene who loved you and he gave his life for you. He was never called great in this maniacal world, but his name is above every name for all eternity. And at him, every knee will bow. Merry Christmas, brothers and sisters. Your king, the king of the misfits, has come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Can you give us comfort and peace in a world that often seems out to get us? We know that God is for us because he came. We know that God loves us because he came. And we know that God will redeem us and deliver us because he came. Father, if there's anybody here today that needs his comfort, let them turn to him right now. Let them find peace in his arms. He will accept them. Jesus will save them no matter how maniacal they've been. He came to die for them. Lord, let them not hold back and try their own solutions. Lord, let them come to him this morning. May you be glorified as they start to praise him. That you can turn the most maniacal hearts like mine to a heart of flesh that loves. Oh, Father, do a great work this Christmas in this place for your good and your glory. Amen.